Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is the oldest and most senior podcast in the realm of compliance and ethics in the FCPA. Today, I have with me Brandon Daniels of Global Technology Market Exeger. He is a regulatory expert. about the technical solutions available from Exeger and how they can assist you as the compliance professional. And a really interesting insight into utilizing technological solutions and in investigations, which can lead to not only prescriptive uh, compliance solutions, but also a continuous monitoring and continuous uh, improvement of your compliance program. It's a really a fascinating interview of a use of a tool that is required in every compliance program, but uh, is not really seen as a continuous monitoring tool. I know you will enjoy it and you will get uh, some great insights about how you can use a standard compliance requirement moving forward. So check out this interview. I know you'll find it useful. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you're in for a treat today because I have Brandon Daniels. Brandon is with Exeger, and he is going to visit with us about technological innovations that are going to help not only your compliance program, but specifically uh, with your internal investigations. Uh, We were visiting a little bit before the podcast about this topic, and with the recently released Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 guidance, I think uh, investigations are even more important and significant as a part of your best practices compliance program, not simply to uh, get you out of hot water uh, when either the DOJ uh, is knocking or you uh, get an internal whistleblower report. So, Brandon, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Yes, thank you. It's uh, it's fantastic uh, to be on the podcast, and uh, I've listened to others as we were talking about, and uh, I'm excited to be a part of it. So I was wondering if you could detail with us a little bit of your professional background, and, and specifically how you got to Exeter and what you do with uh, for them now. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually a little bit of a meandering of a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, I I started off in litigation management and investigations. Uh, I've been a part of some of the largest investigations in financial services history. Uh, For instance, for major market participants, I managed the LIBOR investigation. Uh, I managed the foreign exchange probe into both uh, trader manipulation in that market, as well as um, coordinated antitrust issues. Uh, I've also done a number of large-scale investigations in emerging markets. Um, I worked with uh, one of the major financial institutions when they were uh, looking at their connection to um, uh, officials in China, uh, and in particular, uh, the uh, hiring and recruitment of, um, of staff that were related to them, right? So... I've done FCPA investigations in China and Latin America uh, and other places. Um, But one of the things that 
I kept coming across as I was running these large-scale investigations is, one, uh, the difficulty of getting through millions of documents, sometimes hundreds of millions of documents, financial records, and trying to make sense of them in a consistent way. And I've run cases where we've had 600 to 1,000 lawyers working on them before, uh, and, and getting a consistent uh, narrative was always difficult. Uh, the second thing is uh, we had the birth of electronic discovery during my career, and uh, you know the the requirements around electronic evidence have always represented um, uh, an interest of mine, uh, but also uh, they were a difficult challenge for uh, my clients to solve in most of my investigations. And then lastly, uh, you know maybe this says more about me than it does about the uh, technology or investigations, but. Um, I've always thought I was pretty good at uh, interrogating evidence and, and finding smoking gun documents and putting together the narrative and investigation. And I wanted to expand that capability. I wanted a way to reflect uh, my, my own analysis and the attorneys that are working with me on the cases analysis uh, into these huge you know, volumes of documents and transaction records. And so I actually started working uh, in technology in order to solve those three challenges contemporaneously, right? Uh, I uh, taught myself how to code, uh, deep dived a lot more into statistical methods of analyzing information, and started building applications uh, that um, helped us to make decisions uh, in um in, in crisis matters and in, and in large litigation matters. And uh, one particular example that kind of changed the way that I looked at the world was we were looking at uh, a huge volume of privileged documents that we had to get through and review and produce in a very quick turnaround to the Department of Justice. And uh, we were essentially going to have to push back every deadline that we were looking at we, um, and this was back in 2007, 2008, we actually ran a, a, what's called a naive Bayes analysis that was supported by technology to take the volume of documents that we had to look at from uh, hundreds of thousands down to thousands uh, and reduced what we thought was going to be a three-month project with 60, 70 people on it down to a three-week project and just the five or six attorneys that I was working with on the case having to be involved. And that, that kind of power, that kind of impact, that kind of quality really changed my career and, and brought me to a place where now I evangelize and bring technology to large-scale investigations, large-scale compliance programs, and sort of the BAU life of financial institutions and corporations. Brendan, I'm going to read from the uh, uh, 2019 guidance uh, their statement about uh, investigations, and it doesn't speak directly to how you do investigations, and that is what leads me to think it's made investigations even more important. So it asks these questions. Have the company's investigations been used to identify root causes, systemic or system vulnerabilities, accounting lapses among uh, supervisory and senior executives? Have the Has the process for what has been the process for reporting responding to investigative findings, and how high up do those investigative findings do? What struck me about these questions from the 2019 guidance is it puts even more pressure on 
uh, investigators, investigative solutions to uncover any violations which may need to be remediated. If if you listen to the Department of Justice, uh, Brian Spinkowski and Claire Murray both said investigations are absolutely critical for two reasons. One, it allows a company to self-report sooner to the Department of Justice for so perhaps greater credit, but also it stops the illegal conduct from happening. How can a technological solution or even the tech revolution that you and others are leading help companies do investigations with, frankly, tons more data more quickly and more efficiently? Yeah, so there, there's the first piece that you mentioned that's really critical, which is investigation should be a part of your BAU process, right? So it, it has often been the case that you go through a pretty rudimentary risk assessment of your third parties, right? And the uh, partners that you deal with across your enterprise. And you only put those at the very top of the sort of risk categorization through a level of diligence investigation. Um, But that is no longer sufficient, right? I think if anyone were to look at, you know, the, the revised evaluation criteria, as well as what's going to happen over the next five years in terms of um, mitigating factors to the sentencing guidelines. I think people that have made it so that investigations and due diligence into third parties as a BAU part of their process are going to see better outcomes in the, you know, in either self-reporting or post-investigation process if they've built a model to actually investigate and to do due diligence on a routine basis across all their third parties. But the, the, the second point that you made, which is that's a lot of work and there's more data to review than ever in order to do that kind of due diligence is what begs and demands uh, the introduction of technology. And so what we've seen companies doing is to essentially break down the investigation process, the third party risk management process, And to think about the steps that they're actually taking when they're doing things like public records research on an entity to try to determine whether or not there are any latent issues in terms of export control or in terms of connections to political officials or or past sort of reputational risk that they've demonstrated. And trying to find the sources that they go to uh, in order to determine Uh, whether or not those uh, indicators, those risk indicators exist about those um, uh, companies or about those individuals and creating mechanized ways to recreate the due diligence that they're doing against those data sources, right? Um, That's that's a big part of what we are doing. We've got a a third-party management software that we've built over the course of the last six years that inherently takes exactly what the financial crime compliance experts that work here at Exeger and the anti-bribery and corruption experts that work here at Exeger do every day, and it routinizes it, right? So we go out and we look at all of the corporate records first that are related to an entity. And that's that's an automated search, and we try to find the ones that are most closely linked to the third parties that you're dealing with, right? That gives us access to latent entities that you might be connected to, so subs, contractors, whatever might be out there in the public domain. It also lets us know when you've got prior names. You know, are you 
you know, ABC Publishing today, but you used to be Emerald Publishing yesterday, and Emerald Publishing was actually the entity under which you were debarred, for instance, right? So that, that kind of corporate records analysis allows us to identify information that otherwise it used to take, and I've done these, I, I did the Panama Papers investigations for one of the large um, uh, financial institutions a number of years ago, and that could take you hours to actually just build out uh, a view of all of the entities that an individual company is connected to. The second thing is you go out and you, uh, you, know, you do research. You, know, you go to Google, you go to WorldCheck, you go to all of these open source websites, sometimes they have to pay for, and, and you run searches. And you try to determine whether or not the entities you found are the same entities that have been subject to this reputational risk. People are figuring out how to automate that analysis ourselves. And, and, and many other companies are um, essentially building uh, AI that's learned from the decisions and the analysis that we've done, how we investigate an entity and how we identify risk, and, is the, and then is replicating that in open source, unstructured content like articles from the New York Times, right? Uh, it's replicating how to identify that risk and then associate it to our entity. What that leads to is an opportunity to do an incredibly deep level of investigatory analysis on all of your third parties before you even go to the risk ranking process. So it's almost like in the old world, I would do all of my risk assessments in order to determine where I needed to do investigation. And today I'm actually using my due diligence to determine your risk assessment and then the policies, the procedures, the compliance program that I'm going to apply to you. It's so much more effective. And there, there are others that are taking different approaches to this, like uh, a friend of mine, Matt Galvin at AB InBev, you know, he's been working on his, uh, his BrewRight compliance program. And that program is taking a bunch of different indicators in terms of your invoices, your jurisdictions, your um, transaction volumes, you know, your, your irregularities and the types of transactions that uh, uh, AB InBev will have with you and trying to build up a risk score. Again, before you even have an invoice, before I even notice an anomaly, how can I start to generate anomalies and how do I start to generate, uh, you know, indicators of risk that I can then build into my risk assessment so I can determine the level of investigatory review that I'm going to do against you. The companies that are starting to do this now, putting due diligence first, putting you know these kinds of compliance systems first, before they actually make a on, determination on how risky you are and what level of investigation they need to do against you, are going to uh, surpass all of the companies that are doing the old way of taking rudimentary, relatively opaque, and ubiquitous data points against you and determining to only investigate those that, you know, could be um, uh, uh, could be more forthright about the details about themselves, right? If I'm if I'm trying to cover up corruption, I'm not going to give you everything that you need to know about me on a silver platter. I'm going to give you the things that I think are going to help me get into the system, so I can start abusing it or doing what I wish uh, inside of the organization. Brandon, I, actually, I'd like to take that a step further because it strikes me what you've described is a continuous monitoring process, and it's a continuous feedback loop. 
And perhaps using the word investigations is no longer appropriate because it's a seamless unidimensional one-line continuum of uh, information coming in. You're taking the results of that information, obviously running it through some filter, some AI, some way to structure it and then winnow it down, and then taking the results, looping that back into your next decision point. Yeah, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Um, Continuous evaluation or continuous monitoring is really the way to avoid systemic risk. Um, when I, if, if you look at the cases uh, that have been prosecuted over the last 15 years, you know, in some cases the entities came in and they were brought in for the purposes, or for solely the purpose of uh, aiding and abetting, you know, um, fraud or corruption. In many cases, that isn't the initial engagement that they had with you. If you were a, if you're a pharmaceutical provider and you've engaged a distributor in, emerging, in, in an emerging market, and then in a particularly competitive bid, you start evidencing irregular activity, you potentially get flagged by a local investigative journalist uh, for having connections to certain, you know, state hospital officials, right, you could end up in a completely different risk position than you were when you were first onboarded. And continuous evaluation allows you to insulate yourself from the risk that today haunts all corporates in or all major corporates that have international dealings, you know, uh, in, in, um, in most markets is that you can't determine what has changed between a year ago, six months ago, two days ago, and today without systems and the ability to continuously monitoring the, monitor the activities of the entities that you've onboarded. Brandon, how do you find the response to uh, response from CCOs other than Matt Galvin when you talk about this type of approach? You know, so I'll tell you. A couple of years ago, it was it was a hard road. Um, uh, we were evangelizing, uh, but the regulatory posture in this area was not as mature as even as it is today. Right. Right. Um, I, I have I've worked with a lot of great um, in-house counsel and general counsel. Uh, many of them are former AUSAs or prosecutors, so they know the space well. And, and there's a tendency to carve out what is potentially, you know, an FCPA issue or, or a real legal issue versus what, what they want to put over to the side into compliance and say that's more of a policy issue. And, you know, this area of third-party risk management has all often sat in that kind of weird limbo. I think with the Department of Justice... Um, really clarifying what their expectations are in terms of um, uh, third-party risk management. Uh, I think the uh, step up uh, that the SFO has made uh, in the last year or so in terms of their own evangelism, in terms of uh, continuous monitoring of entities and and continuous investigation into uh, the third parties that might create risk for you in high-risk jurisdictions. I think, frankly, 
the industry itself doing things like creating the ISO standards for bribery and corruption have really made it so that this is on the tip of everyone's tongue, right? We went from zero customers to 50 customers using our platform in a very short span of time. And uh, that was largely due to the fact that these that the, that the industry is coalescing. Everyone realizes that corporate compliance is a core uh, requirement and that the, um, the impact of failure is not just the fine, it's your own, it's your own reputational risk. And, and sometimes you don't recover from that. Brendan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted more information on Exeter or uh, some of the topics of this podcast, how would they uh, do so? Um, so there are a couple of ways. One, uh, you can, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or, uh, or any of the other, uh, public sites that, uh, that are available, but obviously, um, I would direct you to our website. You know, we've got, uh, great, uh, professionals that cover a lot of these same topics and issues. Um, uh, you can connect with them individually, uh, or you can reach out to contact us, uh, at Exeger through the website as well. Well, Brandon, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yes, thank you, Tom. It was great. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Brandon Daniels of Exeter. I found it fascinating, and the use of uh, investigative tools, techniques, and strategies as a continuous improvement tool, I think, is something that every compliance practitioner needs to uh, consider going forward, particularly in light of the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance issued by the Department of Justice in April of this year. I've linked to uh, Exeger's website for more information and also Brandon's contact information in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, check it out and uh, give Brandon a shout. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow where I present a, another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We are presenting several this uh, holiday week. Uh, Tomorrow, I have Dave Laforte, the uh, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, who discusses Compliance Week's new uh, and revamped website. So check that out. Once again, thank you for listening. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.